This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. Look, we all know from experience, compliance sucks. But what if I told you that there is a better way? Our good friends at Bycheck developed the first ever managed service for SOC 2. Leverage the innovative Bycheck platform and a combined experience of over 30 years from the Bycheck team to complete your SOC 2 examination faster without the headache. The Bycheck team works as an extension of your team to prepare evidence, draft SOC 2 report sections, and provide all the necessary artifacts to your team to then provide to auditors. Reach out to the Bycheck team by dropping down into the show notes and visiting Bycheck.com. Welcome back to the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast. Today's guest has the ability to see the value in ideas, teams, and individuals. Sam is a very accomplished venture capitalist, and he gives us a sneak peek into his incredible mind. Let's jump right in. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again. In the studio today, we have a guest that is focused on partnering with the next generation of entrepreneurs and helping them scale their products and revenue. In the studio today, we have Sam Motamity. He is a general partner at Greylock and also serves on the board for a wide variety of startups. Sam, it's a great pleasure to speak to you. And most importantly, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ron and Chris. I'm excited to be here. Fantastic, Sam. We had one or two conversations before this, and each time I thought, we have to get some on the podcast. But for the folks that don't know who you are just yet, we'd love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. Absolutely, Chris. And, and yeah, I remember our prior conversations fondly and I'm excited to do this one. As Ron mentioned in the introduction, I'm one of the partners here at Greylock. Greylock is a Silicon Valley-based venture capital firm. We've been in the business of venture capital for a little over 55 years now. And today, we primarily focus on consumer and enterprise software companies. I'm on the enterprise side of our practice, and I invest up and down the stack. So, you know, business application software, data and app services, infrastructure, and security. I've been at the firm for the last five years and have had the privilege of working with an interesting set of companies. From a stage perspective, we invest as early as one person and an idea to as late as a company that's, you know, in tens of millions of dollars of revenue and scaling on path to IPO. And regardless of where we invest from a stage perspective, we typically partner with entrepreneurs through the life of the company, including to the IPO and, and beyond. At Greylock, I primarily focus on companies that share two characteristics. One is companies that want to sell software into the large enterprise. And the second is companies that either are using data and machine learning as a core part of the product advantage to go after an existing software market or infrastructure companies that are making it easier for large enterprises to stand up their own data and machine learning projects. So to give you a flavor of companies I'm involved with, at the top of the application stack, companies like Blend, which is an at-scale company that builds origination software for large banks like Wells Fargo to automate 
the origination and underwriting of mortgages, to companies like Cresta, which uses AI to coach agents and call centers and drive more effectiveness. So that's an example of application layer companies. On the security side, companies like Abnormal Security, which is building a next generation cloud email security platform, or uh, Epiro, which is operating in the DevSecOps space. And then on the infrastructure side, companies like Snorkel, which is a data-centric machine learning platform. So a wide range of companies, but all exceptional entrepreneurs building in very large markets and, and selling software to the enterprise. That's outstanding. We know a few VCs, and it seems like each VC that we talk to, at least the ones that are really impactful and have a lot of influence, they have a firm understanding of their superpower, what it is they do better than most people. And I would love to know, what is your personal superpower? What is it that you do that you apply to your work as a VC? And when did that first come up for you? It could have been in childhood. It could have been your first couple of jobs. But when did that really show up for you? And what was the story behind that? Yeah, that's that's an outstanding question, Chris. And it's it's something I, I do think about quite a bit. Um, you know, I'd say there's three things that I think of. One is I take great delight in helping an entrepreneur who has started in a very large market with an interesting technical insight go from that to initial 1.0 product, key use case definition, and customer segmentation that can support the early foundation of a repeatable go-to-market motion, right? And, and again, I think of these companies in phases. So, you know, an initial phase might be initial product conception and development. The next phase is product market fit. The next phase is go-to-market fit and repeatability. And then kind of the last phase, which is ongoing, is scale and organization building. And so all of those phases are important and have distinctive challenges but I really specialize in helping entrepreneurs move from stage two to stage three. I mean, I think that's where the underlying machinery for a company is really built. And, and so in terms of where does that capability come from? I think two places, right? So one is before Greylock, I was on the startup side, helped build a company called Late IQ in the 2013, 2014, 2015 window, which was one of the early applied AI companies focused on CRM, customer relationship management space. The core insight we had there was the email inbox is a rich treasure trove of data for sales representatives. And so we had a product that integrated into your email inbox, applied different machine learning and natural language processing techniques on top of email, and use that to augment and automate sales workflows. So you could think of it as an alternative, an intelligent alternative to Salesforce. And then that company was ultimately acquired by Salesforce. And a lot of that technology became the foundation of what's now called Salesforce Einstein. But through that journey, as a product person, you know, saw firsthand the challenges that go into going from that core product insight to a 1.0 product in customers' hands with defined use cases that a customer can purchase, and then building out the go-to-market machinery to support the repeatable sale of those use cases. So that was on the company building side. And then now kind of on the venture side, if you look at my portfolio, a number of those companies are ones where we got involved when really it was just a person or two people and have progressed through that phase and are now in the phase of we've got go-to-market fit and we're beginning to scale the organization. And so by getting to play a small role and working with founders of these different companies to go through these phases, there's a number of learnings that we can bring and, and kind of become a superpower for the next set of companies. So I think that's one, which is going from product market fit to go to market fit and repeatability. 
I think the second piece is around recruiting. If you think of it, at some level, company building is quite simplistic. You need a very large market. You need a differentiated product. You then need to get to go-to-market repeatability. And everything becomes hiring, retaining, and growing and managing talent to scale the organization. And so at Greylock, we spend a lot of time on talent. We actually have teams that are just full-time focused on recruiting talent, but also as investors and board members. If I can help you identify, evaluate, and land an excellent VP of sales or head of product management or head of engineering, that can have a step function impact on a company. So we spend a lot of time network building and working on, on recruiting. And then I think the third piece is customer development. So you know, early on, when you start a new company, you're unknown and you don't have a ton of credibility in the marketplace. And so my goal is, can I help you bootstrap that credibility until you can stand on your own legs? And so, Chris, I spent a, a lot of time, frankly, meeting people like you who are actual practitioners in the field and understanding, understanding pain points from your perspective and then helping facilitate connectivity to our early stage entrepreneurs. And if I can help an entrepreneur secure their first five to 10 customers, they can do the rest. But if, if I can just provide a little bit of help, that can really make an impact. That's actually a great answer. And it makes me think that another one of your superpowers that you really alluded to is seeing the value in people and also seeing the value in technology that can really bring disruption to an industry. The thing that I would want to know is with this ability, it seems like you've spent a long time cultivating this ability. Did this begin when you were a kid? Did you see value in people when you were doing school projects? You're like, this person can do this really well. Let's bring them together and do this project together. Did that show up for you in childhood or is this something that you cultivated as an adult? It's interesting. I, I'm thinking back now and I always taken great delight in identifying and finding ways to work with and collaborate with exceptional people. And I take the most delight in finding someone before it's obvious to the rest of the world, right? If, if you're a proven, you know, repeat entrepreneur, CEO, of course, we'd love to find a way to work with you. And I personally would. But at that point, you're a proven operator. What to me is even more exciting and gratifying is if you can identify that person perhaps before they've even realized they should be an entrepreneur, right? And so, Chris, yeah, I think back to growing up in school and in college, definitely spent a lot of time building a variety of student organizations and, and taking great joy in, in developing talent in those organizations. But I'd say really kind of over the last five to six years, and, and candidly, it continues to be a challenge for me, which is to say, how do you, in a short period of time, really develop an understanding of someone? And if I think about some of the best investments we've done over the years, either ones the firm has made or the ones that I've been involved with, it really comes back to the people and the founders. And we're really looking for that combination of someone who has an important technical insight on how to deliver a superior product and can combine that with extreme customer centricity in the way they both build their product, but also build their company. If we find that, you know, even once or twice a year, we get so excited. And by the way, the flip is also true, which is if I think about the mistakes and we make mistakes every single day, the mistakes we've made on not partnering with specific companies, they really all come back to underestimating the entrepreneur. So I think people judgment 
is the most important skill that a venture capitalist has to develop. And it's one that I've worked on and you know will be working on for many years to come. I know one of your your areas of focus is artificial intelligence. And I think from a customer perspective, we sometimes put the cart before the horse and we love hearing these buzzwords, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and we forget about focusing on the usability or the use cases of the product and just focus on the fact that it focuses on a specific technology. How do you weed out these companies or founders that are focused on the buzzwords and help them understand to deliver use cases that the customers are really going to benefit from? The number of pitches I see that talk about artificial intelligence in some way every single week, <laughs> it would blow you away. So, you know, it, it is something that's very top of mind. And that's why I always hesitate when I say I invest in artificial intelligence, right? Because, or AIML, because the truth is I invest in companies that solve important problems for customers. And if you're using AI techniques to solve that problem, that's fantastic. But again, you have to start with the customer problem. So when we are evaluating these companies, the first question is not what is the technology you're using, but it's what's the customer problem you're solving for. If that customer problem requires ML to solve it, then we begin to evaluate, okay, what is the, the quality of the underlying artificial intelligence and machine learning? And there are a couple of things we look for, right? So the first piece is we look for practical AI, right? So I'm less interested in understanding kind of at a theoretical level what one could do or what one could do leveraging what's out there in the open source because it turns out real-world customer environments are hairy, they're messy, the data is never as complete and clean as you want it to be. And so the interesting thing becomes like, how do you build a quality ML product that can operate in a real world customer environment? And if you actually go talk to these companies, what you'll learn is like, often it's an ensemble architecture where they're using some machine learning, they're using, you know, frankly, domain heuristics and, and rule-based systems to actually bootstrap the product and get it to some level of performance without needing a massive amount of perfectly kind of clean and labeled data, which again, often doesn't exist in these real world environments. And then I think the last piece is, are you building a product where there's an a interface that end users can operate with and then over time improve the quality of the machine learning? And if you're building that, you know, you get credit for two things. One is, again, it means you're taking a very practical approach. But the second is you're building a compounding data loop that over time drives more and more moat and advantage to your product, right? So for example, in the security use case, where of course we see a lot of AI and ML, the classical example would be if you're building some kind of new detection capability and you have an event where the ML engine is unsure and you expose that event to an end security analyst and you look for feedback from the analyst to make a decision, how do you collect that feedback in a way that then makes the underlying ML better? And if you really nail that loop, then to state the obvious, as you have more and more customers and more and more interactions, the quality of your product only improves. So, you know, those are the dimensions. Like to summarize, it's all about the customer problem, not the technology. If the technology is important for solving the customer problem, then the question becomes, are you taking a practical approach that can actually perform in real world customer settings? And then have you architected the product and architecture in a way where there's compounding value over time as your models see more and more events and capture more and more customer feedback? I love the fact that you brought up product market fit because that's so key when it comes to doing anything really. 
But I also think of timing. If you look at companies like General Magic, it, it seems like they had the right team, they had the right idea, but they were just a little bit too early. So product market fit can often be a moving target. What is some advice that you would have on timing, on how to make sure you have the right team, the right idea at the right time? There are two ways I think about approaching this. The first is I think about it from a customer segmentation perspective, right? And again, like this answer will really be for B2B oriented companies. But if you think about B2B oriented companies, you know, and again, I, just because I was talking about security, I'll pick on security again. And you take security and you segment the world. Obviously, every company in the world should be caring about security. But there are different ways to segment it. And one segmentation that is interesting is like you have, let's say, more modern technology forward early adopter organizations. And that's likely a smaller percentage of the overall universe. And then, you know, at the very extreme, you might have really large regulated companies that have complex heterogeneous, you know, IT environments. And as a result are or laggards as it comes to adopting the latest and greatest technology. So there's that spectrum, right? And then obviously there's a nuanced segmentation on that spectrum. And when we think about kind of market timing, the truth is timing varies across segments, right? I think a really good example of this would be like everything happening in cloud security, right? There are some organizations that are cloud native, built from the ground up on the cloud, And those organizations can adopt a certain form factor of cloud security solution. Yet there are other organizations that might have no cloud presence or have 25% of their workloads and applications running on the cloud. And so the type of solution you deliver is going to look very different based on those segments. And for one segment, your timing might be fantastic, right? And for kind of a different segment, you might be five years too early. And that's okay. So what we look for is what is the segmentation in terms of timing to adopt And then you're a new company, you know, let's say, for example, Chris, you start a new company today, you don't need every other organization in the world to be your customer in the next three years. So whatever that segment is where the market timing is correct, is is there enough? Is there enough customers in that segment to get the business going and growing revenue at sufficient levels over the short to medium term? And then, of course, the second thing that has to be true is like the rest of the market is going to then catch up. So that once you saturate that, those initial segments, you can expand and broaden your customer focus. And now the timing is correct and the product market fit is there for those additional segments. Of course, if like the initial segment where you have product market fit from a timing perspective is tiny and it's you know three organizations that happen to be at the frontier of whatever you're working on, then you're too early. So I think that's one cut at the question. The second is there's this trade-off between asking customers for what they want but then also having an intuition around what customers should want or what they're going to want. Like the whole phrase, skating to where the puck is versus skating to where the puck is going. And so, you know, sometimes we have entrepreneurs who go talk to customers and pitch a product idea. And, you know, let's say the entrepreneur came from an end user persona and believes like firsthand saw some pain and and came up with kind of this product solution. And they go talk to a bunch of customers and, and, and the feedback they get from customers is some version of like, hey, it's too early we're not ready for that type of solution. There's two ways to interpret that. One is like, you're actually too early, right? And then the second is like, hey, based on kind of perhaps a more myopic view of, of the way the customer's looking at the problem, you're too early. But if you actually go build this thing and rely on your intuition of the way this problem should be solved and kind of get this thing fully working and out there in customers' hands, customers will actually realize they're not too early and they should be using it, right? And, and I'd say there's just nuance in that. 
And we see entrepreneurs, you know, sometimes get that wrong on both sides of the equation. On that same point, I would imagine that COVID-19 and all the digital transformation that we're going through has really affected go-to-market strategies and has probably even affected you just operating as a VC. What have been some of the surprises that you've uncovered or experienced since all of COVID-19 occurring and also really seeing the evolution of digital transformation today? So, you know, I'd say on the way we work, the fundamental constructs haven't changed, right? I spend my weeks split between meeting new entrepreneurs with exciting companies and, and evaluating those companies and, and, and evaluating whether or not, you know, we mutually want to partner together. And then on the companies we're already partnered with, you know, in board meetings and recruiting sessions and, and product sessions. And, and so really helping build those businesses. And of course, we're now all doing that in our virtual Greylock office, but beyond the fact that, that we're not doing it in person, core fundamentals look very, very similar. I'd actually say like our pace of investing is, is faster than it's ever been. The rate of innovation and new company creation, not just companies, quality companies that are being started and coming across our desk is, is faster than it's ever been. And so in many ways, like it, it's kind of business as, as usual with even more flow of interesting companies and interesting products being built. On how COVID-19 has impacted companies, I'll first start with like how it's impacted decision-making on what we want to go invest in and then how it's impacted kind of the companies themselves. So I'd say if you're pitching, you know, me or Greylock or, or candidly any venture firm today as an entrepreneur, the question is not just, you know, how is your product relevant in a COVID and, and hopefully soon kind of post-COVID but new world. It's how is your product even more relevant? than it was, you know, pre-COVID. You have to, like, there are so many things competing for customer attention and priority. There has to be a story of why what you're doing is, is even more important in the new world, right? So maybe I'll give kind of two examples of, of companies we're involved with. Like one is a company called Abnormal Security. And Abnormal Security is really focused on building a new email security platform for modern cloud email environments and has you know, advanced capabilities around stopping business email compromise and spear phishing attacks. Business email compromise and spear phishing has been the leading driver of cybercrime in the US for several years now. So the company had very strong customer interest in growth before COVID. But post-COVID, and you know, in whatever the post-new world looks like, one thing is true and, and will continue to be true, which is more and more work and communication is happening on digital channels. And email obviously being a dominant digital channel. And so the integrity and security of those channels are more important than ever before. And so if you're an organization out there and you're thinking about what areas you want to go invest in from a security perspective, thinking through that digital security and the, the integrity of those digital channels and email is much more relevant going forward than it was historically, right? So, you know, that's one example. And another example, not in security, is, is, is a company called Cresta, which build software for large companies that operate call centers. And if you're Intuit or Cox Communications or you know, Home Depot, so much of your customer interaction has now moved from the offline world to the online world. And suddenly, the people who are sitting in these contact centers empowering your digital chat channels, your self-serve channels, your voice channels, they are the front door to your brand and they control the customer experience that your end consumers enjoy. 
And so software that helps those people be more effective and more efficient in their jobs was always important. It's 10x more important when those people are controlling all of the touch points with your end customers, right? So that's kind of a big thing we now look for, which is we really want to invest in companies that are playing for the new normal and are leaning into these secular trends. You brought up digital transformation, so I just wanted to touch on that for a moment. I mean, I think you know Satya Nadella early on in the pandemic said a quote that's now infamous. You know, multiple years of digital transformation got compressed into multiple months, and we've absolutely seen that across all of the companies we work with on the software side. You know, people were on this digital transformation train and recognized that they needed to digitize and make more modern their businesses, but now they have to. It's existential. And every company realizes they have to be a technology company. They have to buy and build software. And so the great news for entrepreneurs is a lot of projects they are working on with different customers got pulled up. And I, I think we're, we're going to continue to see that happen. And it's just, I truly think it's like never been a better time to build a software company selling into the enterprise. One thing that I think works for movies, but doesn't work so well in software and and the industry is that if you build it, they will come mentality. We're drawn and I are both very familiar with abnormal security, but there are other dark horses out there that have incredible technology, but they're not able to get in front of the, the buyer. They're not able to get in front of the clients and the customers. What are some of the strategies that people are using today in order to get in front of people? As we talk about COVID, we know that conferences aren't really holding in person anymore. They're, they're going online. But what are the best ways that people are getting to know about these new technologies? Yeah. So let me kind of talk about three, three different ways, right? So the first is crawl before you walk, before you run. The reality is if you're a new company, you don't need 100 customers. You don't even need 20 customers in the early days. What you need to go do is find three to five customers and make them super successful and advocates for the product. And start very narrow and go slow to go fast. So whether that's you know working with folks like us on the investor side and getting in touch with people like you, Chris, and your network, finding a few advocates around the company who can just get you to that three to five customer goal, that's step one. Go make those customers super successful and they'll become references and evangelists that will help you get the next 15 and things will grow sort of organically from there. That's one thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is, yeah, I mean, look, if you in January of 2020, if you went and surveyed the VPs of marketing and demand gen that I work with, and you said, what's the most effective channel for net new customer meetings? Most early stage software VPs would tell you uh, in-person dinners and in-person conferences. And, and so, of course, post-pandemic, you take kind of two primary demand channels and, and you take them to zero. And everyone's had to re-architect. And so the first thing we saw was virtual events, virtual webinars, different types of get-togethers and roundtables. And I think that was really effective for about three months until everyone realized they were spending far too much time on Zoom. And the idea of going to yet another virtual event became less and less attractive. And so now I'd say the bar is really high because when things are virtual, everyone can compete for limited attention. There's no longer you know, geographical segmentation. And so you've got to do something to really stand out. So we've seen companies in our portfolio do things like virtual wine tastings where, you know, they'll ship 10 people the same flight of wines and invite a sommelier on and make things interesting, you know, virtual dinners, 
things where, you know, you have to ask yourself if it's 6 p.m. and I just finished a long day of work, how do I make an event exciting enough where someone wants to hop on for another hour of Zoom? And so those are kind of the strategies we've seen people use. But then the third thing I'd say that was already happening, but I think has been exaggerated because of the pandemic is you've got to have the product stand on its own. And so if you're a company that requires a ton of you know, pre-sales work and then implementation work, and it takes four or five months to get a customer from initial meeting to implemented product where they can even begin to see some value, it is really hard right now. You can't go on site to the customer's office. Customers have very little time. And so they, in many cases, don't have the time to go through this entire process. And so I think the companies that are disproportionately benefiting are the companies that have really compressed time to value for their products, have built self-serve from day one, and are product-led from a go-to-market perspective instead of sales-led. Right. So, and I think it particularly like if you're selling into accounts that are cloud native organizations, how do you figure out a way where you take your product, you turn it into a one click deploy, leveraging, you know, API connectors, and you make it so easy that on day one, the customer can see some value and either run a free self serve POC or start with a product that's completely free, but then has some upsell motion and gates, but where the product does the work for you and you pull forward the value delivery versus needing to go through a traditional sales process. I think that was already beginning to be important before COVID, but kind of post-COVID, those companies are really benefiting on a relative basis. Yeah, and speaking of that, I actually heard pretty recently that there's uh, quite a few organizations, uh, new startups that are focused on just providing demos at scale. Like that's a pretty interesting technology that's that's out there. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. And there's like different angles on that. There's there's helping people provide demos at scale. There's helping companies understand how customer prospects are interacting with their demos and interacting with POC products. You're seeing a whole new wave of customer engagement and customer relationship management software get built around this new product-led selling motion. So in a perfect world, if you had a magic wand, which you kind of do because you help these entrepreneurs build products and scale them to grow their customer base and revenue, what technology most excites you today? Wow, that's a great question. And the one thing I'd say, it's the entrepreneurs have the wands and we help support them. Look, I think, you know, I think there's there's so much change happening and opportunity happening. I'd say if you ask me, like, what am I most excited about at a broad technology level, despite the earlier part of our conversation around AI and ML, definitely in some cases being overdone and, and more marketing than product, I am extremely excited about AI and ML in two different dimensions. One dimension is just better decisioning. So whether you're, you're building a sales forecasting application, you're building a new type of detection capability, leveraging all of the advancements that have happened in underlying ML technology and, and declining cost of compute and applying that on top of domain data sets for decision-making and different types of statistical analysis, I still think we're in the very early innings of the impact that's going to have across functions. So that's one piece. But then the second piece is, is automation. And if you go and pick any function inside a company, there is so much work being done that's redundant, tedious, and low-hanging fruit. And you're seeing both kind of horizontal automation providers pop up as well as vertically focused ones. But I think, again, if you fast forward 10 years, 
we will have the benefit of having software do a lot of the low-hanging, tedious work for us and free up ourselves and, and the workforce more broadly to focus on higher value tasks. So that continues to be an area I'm very interested in you know, broadly. I think on the security side, I think there are just so many challenges. I think security's never been more topical than it is today. I think as, as large enterprises move to hybrid cloud environments and now with remote work and, and the virtual office, everything around securing that is really important. Um, I think, you know, as companies become software companies and the pace of development is of paramount importance. You know, movements like DevSecOps and shifting security responsibility earlier in the development tool chain, both to drive stronger security and faster development speed, you know, that continues to be really, really important. I think as we see the proliferation of new data platforms and use cases around machine learning and analytics, the governance and security of data flowing through those systems, that's of, that's of strong importance. So I think you know security continues to be very, very top of mind. And then kind of the third thing I'd add is future of work and productivity. We've been fortunate to be investors in companies like Dropbox, Figma, Quip, Coda. You know, and all these companies are, are taking advantage of the fact that the browser is in many ways the virtual office. And so how do you reimagine everything from document creation to design to project management in a way that feels native to the browser, that's collaborative, that's networked on the back end? Like that is going to change the way we all work. And and there's going to be great software companies built around that. Sam, there's someone listening to this podcast right now that has their idea, they have their team, and they're on their way to your office or Zoom (laughs) to chat with you about what they've come up with. What are the best ways to pique your interest? What are the best things that they need to have in order as they come into this meeting? Because they want to disrupt some facet of cybersecurity, some facet of technology. What advice would you have for that person? The first piece of advice is it's never too soon to come talk to us. You know, Workday was started in our offices with, you know, two initial founders. Palo Alto Networks was started in our offices with one person and idea on a whiteboard. I think there's a conception out there that, you know, to come talk to a Greylock, you know, you've got to have your slide deck built and your prototype done and your initial customers. And I'd say most, in fact, most of the investments I've made have been before any of those things have been in place. So just start by saying like, we want to talk to people early. And even if you're just beginning to think about starting a company and, and thinking through different ideas, we'd love to be your thought partner in doing that. You know, when we evaluate early stage companies, we're really looking at two things. The first is we want to understand the market opportunity, right? And we're optimists around software. We think software is going to disrupt a number of areas. But the real question is, you know, in the next 10 years, what are the 10, 20 markets that are really going to lend themselves to the biggest scale of disruption and value creation. And those are the markets we want to be a part of. So if you came in and and we were having a conversation, I want to understand how you think about the market. Is this a replacement market play where there's an existing incumbent that you're taking advantage of a new technology trend to go replace? Or is it an emerging market play where there's some new behavior that's emerging in customers and you're going to exploit that to grow your business? Either is fine. Either can lead to large businesses. But having the clarity of understanding around which market dynamic you fall in. And then the next question becomes that customer segmentation question. So who's who's your ideal customer today? What are the characteristics they have? How many of them are there? What will they pay for your software? And then how does that broaden and grow over time to support you in getting to 100 million of ARR, 500 million, a billion, and hopefully, you know, multiple billions of revenue scale over the next decade, right? 
if we can understand that and you can help us get to the same level of conviction you have around why that market opportunity is so fundamentally important, that's piece one. And, and that box is sort of checked. And then piece two is we really want to understand you. Again, at the early stages, like it's so much a people bet. And so we want to understand your story, why you are the right person to start this company, how you're going to deliver a product to the marketplace that drives superior customer value. Who are you going to recruit around you? And what do you most need help on? If we can understand that and kind of get to alignment on that and you're operating in a really large market, we'd love to be partners. Some. Thank you so much for hopping on the mics with us and delivering a masterclass on technology entrepreneurship. For the folks that want to stay up to date with you and all the great things you're doing at Greylock, what are the best ways that people can do that? You know, my Twitter is is just at Samadamidi. You can go to Greylock's website, greylock.com. We have a blog that we're regularly publishing on that I'm on often as well around both new areas we're investing in and also new things we want to see get created. And then, you know, folks want to reach out to me, you know, they can email me anytime, just sam at greylock.com. Awesome. I would highly encourage everyone to follow Sam and even use the email that he just put out there. Sam, thank you so much for jumping on the mics with us. It's been a true pleasure and we will see everyone next time. If you found value in this content, it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media, sent it to a friend or talked about it over coffee. Thank you.